0: Well, good morning, Sovereign Grace. We're glad that you're here. Welcome. If you're a, a visitor who came in for the first time this morning and we didn't get any information to you, let me know. We, feel free to come speak to me after the service. I'd love to talk to you and get some information to you. This is the time in our service where those children who are going out to Sunday school head out. And so you are free to go. There is a not, nursery and toddler area that goes during the duration of the service. Um, obviously, the children are more than welcome to stay and worship with us. We're going to be looking at the book of Genesis together. So some of the brothers are going to be passing out Bibles. Um, I'm not sure who's assigned to do that, but I don't see anybody presently. Um, Oh, there's Curtis. So uh, they'll be passing out Bibles. So if you just flag um, the guys down as they come up and down the aisles, you will need a Bible. Uh, We're a people under God's word together. So we'll be in God's word together. So just flag them down and, and they'll get one into your hands and While they're doing that, if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 30, Genesis chapter 30, we're returning to our series in this book. Um, We left off with the birth of of a number of children to Jacob through Leah and Rachel and through their um, two concubines, actually right at the, the birth of Joseph is where we left off, and so... We're going to pick up there in our reading. Genesis chapter 30, we're going to start reading in verse 25. Genesis 30, starting in verse 25. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away, that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I'll give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household? He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb. And the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, everyone that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, in the, water, the watering places, where the flock came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink... The flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He did put, or excuse me, he put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the strong of the flock were breeding, Laban w- or Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. This is the word of the Lord. Let us go to him in prayer. Father, we ask that as we come before you and consider your word that we would receive it as it is. Your word, written by Moses as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit for the sake of your church. We know that the grass withers and the flower fade. flowers fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And we pray that we would be mindful that your son, the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, is speaking to his church by the Spirit. Through the word. Use me as a minister of the word faithfully. Cause us to trust evermore in Christ. Our savior, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We all have a tendency to see our prosperity as an opportunity for self-congratulations. I do not mean that we always all self-congratulate when we're prosperous, but we tend to see our prosperity as an opportunity for it. We tend to soak in the glory of achievement. Children, you, you know what this looks like because let me give you the most obvious picture of it. When an athlete wins a competition and sort of pounds his own chest in victory, celebrating his great accomplishment, and and essentially pointing everyone to himself. Look at me. Look at what I've done. He seems to be completely, blissfully unaware that he did not create himself or give himself athletic ability. He seems completely unaware that he did not arrange his circumstances so that God put him in the way of good coaches or good teammates. He doesn't even consider that maybe God gave him great opportunities and that perhaps in this competition the ball or the play or whatever happened just broke exactly right for him in that moment. It's just all about, I'm amazing. Look at what I've done. This sign kind of self-congratulatory behavior. Well, friends, the proud parent or businessman or artist or or whatever can behave in the same way. Further, we can all tend to plot means of gaining more glory and becoming even more self-congratulatory. I, I don't mean to be cynical, so I hope you understand. I'm not trying to be cynical. I do know that there are faithful Christians who see their prosperity as coming from the hand of the Lord and they grow in trust and in gratitude in the face of their prosperity. But my main point is that man is so often scheming for his own glory and forgetting his creator and provider. It's endemic to all fallen human beings. We've rebelled against God and exchanged the glory of God for our own glory. To ante this up a bit, the unbelieving world is often scheming to harm those who trust the Lord. Those who trust the Lord in some way offend them and they scheme to harm them. Well, let me carry it another step. Those who trust in the Lord, like you and me, we often trust in ourselves and scheme in a variety of fleshly ways. This morning we're going to look at a passage where we see scheming from God's people and from the enemy of God's people. So I want you to hear that. We're going to see two different different groups of people scheme. We're going to see the enemy of God's people scheme against God's people, and then we're going to see God's people scheming in some way. And yet in the midst of all this, we're going to see the Lord work for our good and for his own glory. So we're going to look at the passage under two points. First... The vain plots and frustrated counsel of God's enemies. So we're going to look at that in Genesis 30, verses 25 through 36. We're going to see, laid out in front of us, if you will, these kind of futile attempts of God's people to make plans to prosper, excuse me, of God's enemies to make plans to prosper against God's people. Second thing we're going to look at is in verses 37 through 43, And there we're going to look at the providence of God as he patiently blesses his people, even when his people employ fleshly schemes. So we're going to see two groups of people scheming, God's enemies and God's people. So let's look first at the vain plots and frustrated counsel of God's enemies. And let's walk through this section of Scripture together just briefly. Look with me at Genesis 30 and verse 25. As soon as Rachel had borne... Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. Now, if you remember the story, Jacob is Isaac's son, Isaac is Abraham's son, and Jacob, Isaac's son, was sent away from the promised land. The land that God had promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Jacob was sent away from it to the land of Rebekah, his mother. He was sent there to find a wife. He was sent there to escape from Esau, his brother's wrath, because he had deceived Esau. On his way to Rebekah's household, as Jacob was going to this land where his mother is from, as he was headed there, the Lord met with Jacob and made him a promise. So I don't want you to forget that. And then Jacob made a vow. So look at Genesis chapter 28 briefly. Genesis chapter 28. Jacob has a a dream about a ladder from heaven upon which angels are ascending and descending. And I won't get into this whole theophany, this appearance really not just of God, but most specifically this appearance of, of the Son of God of the Christ pre-incarnate. We know that because Jesus, in John 1, says this is about him. Without getting too much depth in that, I just want you to see God's promise. Look at verse 13, Genesis 28, verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, that's the promised land, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In other words, this is all the language of the promise God had already made to Abraham and then made again to Isaac. You're going to have so many children, it's going to be like the dust um, of the seashores. You're going to have um, such great land and prosperity. Uh, that the nations will know of you and I'm going to bless you in such a way that all the families of the earth will be blessed, not only in you but in your offspring, pointing forward to the coming Christ. But notice what he says in verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So Jacob, you're on your way. To Rebekah's household, away from the promised land. You have no wife, you have no children. But what I'm promising to you is that I will keep my covenant promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to you. I will send you there, you will gather a wife and children, and I will bring you back to the land, and my covenant promises will be kept. And then Jacob makes a vow to the Lord in response to that. Look down at verse 20. Of Genesis 28, verse 20, then Jacob made a vow. If you will, this is kind of like Jacob's restipulation. He's not making a bargain here. He's responding to God's covenant promises. Made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in, the, in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I would give a full tenth to you. So Jacob is responding to God's covenant promise saying, listen, if you're going to be my God, which, which he is, then, then I vow to give, give myself to you, to follow you, to honor you. And, and he, he gives him a tithe. Right? I'm going to give you of the first fruits of my wealth. I'm going to give you 10%. I'm going to entrust myself to you, and I'll return. Well, so Jacob came to Rebekah's family, to that land, namely to the household of Rebekah's brother, Laban. He comes there, and Jacob, if you remember, happily served Laban seven years in exchange for his daughter, Rachel. You guys remember this. And Laban deceived Jacob and gave Jacob Leah instead. And then Jacob wanted Rachel still, so Laban said, I'll give you Rachel as a wife as well as Leah, but you're going to have to serve me another seven years. So he took Rachel also as a wife and served another seven years. And then these two wives, the, the polygamy thing wasn't working out well, by the way, just so you know. These two wives began to cause problems for one another, particularly as they had jealousy toward one another. Leah had jealousy of Jacob's love for Rachel, and Rachel ended up having jealousy for Leah's ability to bear children. And so they got in a kind of childbearing race to the point where they started giving Jacob their concubines as well. So now we have four women involved so that they can have a number of children. What's incredible is through all of that sin, the Lord blessed Jacob with many children. Even through their sinful scheming. Even through their their superstition. If you remember, there's kind of a a folklore, a superstition that they participated in. Leah and Rachel were like um, trying to get a hold of the mandrake leaves. Why? Because in that day, they believed that mandrake leaves would sort of bless um, reproductive Abilities, if you will. And so they participated in this kind of superstitious folklore. And yet God blessed them with a number of children. And now that Rachel has given birth to Joseph, this last son, and promised that there's one more coming, i.e. Benjamin, um, he was ready to return. Jacob thought, time to go back to the promised land of Abraham and Isaac. Isaac in accord with God's promise, and in accord with my own vow. And so he's ready. Okay, I've come, I've received my wives, I've received my children, I've served my time, I'm going back to the promised land as I vowed God that I would do. God has kept his promises, I am gonna go and keep mine. God has kept his promises, even in the face of Laban's deceit, and Leah and Rachel's sin, and Jacob's sin, God has still kept his promises. I'm going to go back to the promised land and keep my vow. So then, look at what happens. Go back to Genesis 30 and verse 27 to see Laban's reply. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Now, this doesn't quite come out in English as well as I wish it did, but he's, he's essentially saying this. Listen, if I found favor in your sight, and I, I, just, I just want to make a request, um, if you will, and he's going he's to push into it in a minute. But he, first thing he stops is he almost in a parenthetical stops and says, I've learned by divination that God's blessed me because of you. You, did you guys just catch that? I just, comp- can, uh, if you will, participated in a kind of wicked sorcery. I, we don't know how Laban participated in sorcery or divination here. We just know he did it. We know that the Pentateuch, in other words, the first five books of the Old Testament, clearly condemned this sort of behavior. But somehow he sought out the voice of Satan. It's, it's, it's interesting because the word divination is, is the word serpent, um, same word from which we get that, and not by mistake, what you're listening to or who you're listening to. But but he he has the right information. He is he is blessed. He is blessed because of um, Jacob's presence. He's right about that. But then he goes on and says this makes a statement. Name your wages, and I will give it. It's a fascinating it's a fascinating statement because it it doesn't sound. It, it's, Maybe I should say this way. It comes across in our English a little bit more um, compliant than it really is. He's basically saying, what do I owe you? In other words, I've already given you my two daughters in exchange for your 14 years. I don't really owe you anything. So tell me what I owe you and I'll pay it. You guys understand how that goes? You got what we bargained for. So now you, I don't owe you anything. So tell me what I do, and I'll pay it. And Jacob responds, look at verse 29. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household Also, Jacob's reply is essentially this. when I came, you were not wealthy. I've served you faithfully and now you're wealthy. You're wealthy now. The Lord has blessed you through me. This is in keeping, by the way, with the promise that the nations would be blessed, the peoples would be blessed through Abraham and his offspring. You've been blessed by my presence. Your household is abundantly well cared for now because of my work. Can I not provide for my own? So Jacob then offers a remedy. Tell you what, I'll work longer. You ready? Look at verse 31. He said, what shall I give you? That's what Laban asked. Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb. The, the, The sheep are supposed to be white And not black. You guys understand that? They're not supposed to be spotted, speckled, or black. They're supposed to be white. So let me take those ones. Those are the rarer ones. He's essentially saying, give me the rarer sheep among you, not the most abundant sheep among you. And then he goes on to the goats. And the spotted and speckled among the goats. And they shall be my wages. The goats aren't supposed to have white, and then they're supposed to be black. So he's asking for the rare animals. Verse 33. So my honesty will answer for me later. When you come to look into my wages with you, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you've said. Now I want you to stop. Jacob will work for his wages. He'll shepherd the flock of Laban and cause him to prosper any further, even further, and Jacob will only take the rarest of the animals. And a Laban agrees to these terms. fine. Those are the terms. You remember the terms before? Listen, I'll serve you seven years in exchange for your daughter, Rachel. Great. Deal. Serves him seven years, and then what does Laban do? Gives him the wrong woman. And then he was like, I wanted that woman. Well, you can have her. Seven more years, please. Okay, great. Uh, Give her to me. I'll serve seven more years. Now he comes and says, look, I have made you rich. All I want to do is take something to provide for my own family and return to my land. I've kept our deal across the board. And Laban's like, okay, that's fine. Um, I'll give you whatever I owe you now. And he's like, well, tell you what, I'll work even longer, and I'll take only the rarest of animals. And Laban says, deal. Great. We have a great arrangement. Thank you. Stick around longer. Take only the rarest of animals. And then Laban does this, verse 35. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. You guys see what just happened here? Okay. You can keep all the speckled and spotted sheep and and goats, now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to remove all the current speckled and spotted sheep and goats, take them three days away from you, and say, now you have black goats and white sheep. Good luck producing more speckled, spotted, and the opposite colors. You guys understand how animal husbandry works? Okay. Um, and he, he's, he's leaving him with nothing, essentially. Late, Jacob goes on to take care of the flock. He has been enriched by Jacob's presence, and he wants to keep Jacob so that he continues. And he removes the animals so that there is no way that Jacob can produce the sheeps and goats for himself, and thus leaving Jacob unable to leave. He has no way to provide for his family if he does. But the Lord cares for Jacob. And friends, um, we're going to keep seeing the Lord using the schemes of the wicked to bless his own people. You will see the Lord use this scheme of Laban to bless Jacob, and we get to the next part of the passage. But you're going to keep seeing this theme in Genesis. Joseph's brothers, so Jacob's youngest son, Joseph, the youngest becomes Benjamin, but at this time, Joseph. Jacob's other sons take Joseph, their brother, and sell him into slavery and he ends up in slavery in Egypt. That is a wicked act against Joseph. What Joseph's brothers have no knowledge of is through their evil and deceitful scheme, they were bringing about their own salvation. How so? Because a famine was coming to the land, and Joseph was gonna rise to power in Egypt, and Joseph was gonna give the plan necessary via via, via God's revelation. He was gonna give the plan necessary to provide for Israel For Abraham's family and for all the nations. Through the wicked act of his brothers. You see this story relentlessly. If you haven't noticed it in Genesis, you've just not been paying attention. It's it's so clear to the point where as as the pastoral staff are like, what do we preach on this week? It's the same message again. Man sinned. God worked through that to bring him to salvation and provide for him. What's going on this week? Well, we sinned again and God worked through that to bring him salvation and provide for him. And how about this week? Well, in spite of our wickedness, God just keeps on keeping his promises and blessing us. It's like you can't get away from this relentless drumbeat that the creator of all things, the provider of all things, is bent irresistibly, unstoppably bent on blessing his people. And so you're just hearing it come across the pages of Genesis. You're going to see it right into the Exodus account. Right in the Exodus account. Same thing. People in slavery in Egypt. What does God do? He rescues them and brings them out rich. With much wealth takes them. They start sinning in the wilderness. God blesses them some more. He just keeps on keeping on with caring for his people. It's so Unbelievably clear to read. It may seem for a time that the wicked will prevail in their conceits, but the Lord will not be mocked. I, I, when I say seem for a time, think about Jacob for a time 14 years. And then we'll know this when we get to end of Genesis 31, another six plus years under this guy Laban. I, comprehend over 20 years serving a deceitful, scheming man who's only trying to benefit himself and harm you. Over 20 years. But the Lord will not be mocked. He will care for his people. He will prevail over the schemes of wicked men. Behold, Psalm 7 says, behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit digging it out and falls into the hole that he's made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull his violence descends. See, God will deal justly with the wicked and deceitful. If the wicked do not repent, the Lord will wet his sword and bend his bow. His righteous wrath will come. You can be assured of that. You may not see it, in some short period of time, but his righteous wrath will come. And perhaps this should be a warning to us all. Now why do I say it's a warning to us? Because we've all practiced deceit and evil schemes at one point, haven't we? Every single one of us, at one time or another, we've done so because we've harbored envy, or jealousy, or hatred in our hearts. What does the Bible say about us? Listen to Psalm 101, verse 7. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. If you practice deceit, you shall not dwell in God's house. That means to be with the Lord forever. Has anybody in here practiced deceit? You know that's a, that's, you don't have to raise your hand because you know I know the answer to it. Yes, everybody in here has practiced deceit. What does he say? No one, universal negative No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies. Anybody in here lied? No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Do you hear that? Who among us is not damned to God's righteous wrath upon these terms? Who avoids it? Do any of us avoid God's righteous wrath upon those terms? That's why we look to Christ. In some way, we have all practiced deceit to gain what we want. But not so with Christ. Not so with Christ. There was no deceit in his mouth. Isaiah 53, verse 9. None. He committed no sin. He was holy, innocent, and undefiled. Yet the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was stricken for the transgression of God's people. He was buried with the wicked, though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Do you guys hear that? Universal judgment on us. No one can come into my house Who's practiced deceit? No one can stand in my presence who's uttered lies. The gospel news there was no deceit in his mouth. He never lied, he never sinned. And yet, our transgressions, our iniquities were laid upon him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Why? So that we might be saved. So we might be saved. Jesus is the one whom God sent to save us. And in that saving act, in that saving act, in Christ's death upon the cross, the Lord, even in that act, providentially overruled our own sin to save us. The nations and peoples long plotted against the Lord and his anointed. You guys remember Psalm 2, a Davidic psalm? Why do the nations rage? and the people's plot in vain. Together, they take counsel against the Lord and his anointed, the Christ. Now, what's amazing is, we're told in um, the book of Acts that that was David, by the Holy Spirit, prophesying about Jesus. So look at Acts chapter four with me. Acts chapter four. If we remember, the Jews and Gentiles conspired together to crucify the Savior, our Lord Jesus. These wicked men put him to death, unwilling, uh, and I want you to hear this, as they put him to death, unwittingly doing what God had eternally planned to take place. And herein the Lord saved you and me. Look at verse 23 of Acts chapter 4. The apostles have just been brought before the council and told to shut up, stop talking about Jesus. And they're like, we, we can't obey you on that. We're gonna obey God. And they're released, they're warned about it, and they're released, and we read in verse 23 at their release, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, in other words, the church heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, sovereign Lord, that's um, redundant intentionally, by the way. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. See, you're the creator of all things. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, or his Christ. For truly in this city, the city of Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. See, a Jewish king, if you will, and a Gentile one. Along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. To do, now what did they do? To do this evil thing in crucifying Jesus. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, what they're recognizing is that the crucifixion of Christ at the hands of wicked men was the plan of God all along. I want you to think about that. The Son of God takes humanity to himself, walks among us, is kind and gentle, heals people, cares for them, speaks the truth to them, loves them, And they crucify him. They murder him. And in that great act of sin, God saves them. It's incredible. And the apostles are recognizing, and the church is recognizing this point, that the persecution we're now facing is like our Savior. And so we need strength to carry forward. So look at their prayer request in the face of this, verse 29. And now, Lord, now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants what? Strike them dead. That's not what he says. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They wanted to continue to speak God's word with all boldness. It's not easy to do in the face of persecution. They wanted to. Boldness, um, Alan J. Thompson, who wrote uh, a little book in the the series of New Studies of Biblical Theology, actually, I think, defines boldness helpfully when he says that boldness is clarity in the face of fear. You know what happens when you're afraid? You start to get mealy-mouthed. You start to pull your punches, not tell people what you really believe. You guys know what this is like. You're sitting with somebody, you know they need to hear about Jesus, they're telling you about whatever, and you sort of try to get around to talking about Jesus, but you just get really unclear because you're uncomfortable. You just beat around the bush, you don't want to quite get to, you don't want to quite, okay, so do you know the Lord Jesus? I don't. Well, you should. Okay, and why? Um, so you can be saved? Safe from what? Mm. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, you know, like I started to, this is what we do. We avoid it altogether. We find a way around. We don't want to be clear in the face of fear. And that's what these men are praying for. Make us clear so that we say this in the face of fear. And the fear they have is not just that they'll be ridiculed or disliked, but imprisoned, beaten, and put to death. Give us clarity in the face of fear. They want to continue to speak With boldness. The Lord is the Lord who overrules even our sinful scheming, works through our most wicked acts to bring about his purposes for his people. And they understand that. So if we're struck dead, if we're imprisoned, if we're beaten, then it's for our good and his glory. Give us boldness to speak the word. You saved us. God saved us in Christ as he was murdered by the hands of lawless men. So what do we have to fear? If even a wicked man's attempt to destroy your life, to murder you, can be worked through by God to redound to your good and his glory, what is there to fear? So we ask God to give us boldness boldness to speak the gospel clearly, knowing that even the wicked schemes of those who hate us will serve God's purpose and redound to his glory. Saint, what are you suffering? What are you suffering? Who has plotted and schemed against you? I'm sure someone has. What affliction of body or mind or reputation or personal grief are you suffering? What have the enemies of God... Sin, Satan, and death, and, if you will, the people in their grip, brought to your doorstep. Do you think the Lord did not know that was coming? Do you think the Lord was caught unaware? Do you think the Lord is failing to be at work in this situation? That he isn't accomplishing his sovereign good Purposes for his people and for the glory of his own name. Is that how weak a God we have? That when something comes to our door that seems outside of our control, something we did not expect, something even that is incredibly unjust, we think that we have a God who's so weak that he was caught surprised? That he's not in that for our good and his glory? Please don't spend your days licking your wounds. We have a culture that is so therapeutically bent, if you will, on just licking our wounds all the time. We traumatize ourselves over everything. There are real traumas. Like, hey, you're next to your buddy in war and he gets blown up. That's a trauma. Your parents sort of you know, made things a little difficult at times for you. Not trauma. You understand the difference? You were beaten severely by a wicked father. Traumatic. Traumatic. Your friends made fun of you sometimes at school. Not really trauma. Don't sit around licking your wounds, face the lot that's been cast in your lap, as coming from the hand of the Lord, and pray you're able to faithfully serve him through it. Whatever lot the Lord is cast in your lap, it comes from him. So you embrace it, and you faithfully serve him through it. In fact, may it embolden you to speak clearly about our Savior to those who need to hear it. Yes, you may face terribly hard providences right now. I'm not. I'm not trying to downplay that. You may face terribly hard providences right now, but you need not face those difficult circumstances as an atheist would. As a person who believes God is not here and God is not in control and God is not at work. Rather, we face them knowing that heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. He created all things and he sovereignly disposes of them all for our good and his glory. And we seize this providence, whatever it is, as an opportunity to minister to others around us who are also suffering, blind, and in darkness, but doing, so, if you will, doing all that lacking the eternal hope that you have. You might wonder, but, but um, can I tell you that I do know that as a believer, my faith is often weak. As a believer, in my face often weak. I often sinfully plot and scheme. I trust the Lord, sort of. Sort of. But I, I try to help him out. Perhaps you've even planned, schemed, and practiced deceit because you think it's needed to bring about righteous results. I bet you probably have. And you might wonder, well, how can the Lord use someone like me then? I received his grace, I've known his mercy and love for me, and yet, at times, I have trusted him weakly. W-E-A-K. You understand what I mean by that? Weakly. And I have schemed. Well, saints, the Lord is patient with his people. And that leads to the second major point. The providence of God in impatiently blessing his people, even when we employ fleshly devices. So look at Genesis Chapter 30 again, and in verse 37. Genesis chapter 30 and verse 37. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had healed, or that he had peeled, sorry, in front of the flocks and the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's, and the stronger, Jacob's. So what's happening here? <clears throat> well, in one regard, Jacob is practicing good husband excuse me, good animal husbandry. What do I mean by that? Um, His good animal husbandry is found in his breeding the strong animals separate from the weak ones. Do you understand? That's just good old-fashioned breeding for a farmer. I've got strong animals. I'm going to breed the strong animals with the strong animals. I'm not going to breed them with the weak ones. Okay, great. However, Jacob's also practicing a kind of superstitious folklore here. He really is. His superstitious folklore is found in stripping these sticks of poplar, almond, and plane trees. This, um, a ki- this is a kind of superstition at the time that when the animals looked at, whatever the animals looked at while they were breeding, that would determine their color. Try that one out on your farm if you have one. See how it goes. Just have them look at the right thing and that's the color they're going to be. But that's what they believed at the time. It was sort of a superstitious folklore, kind of like, if you will, um, the mandrake leaves for his wives. So Jacob exposes them to these white streaks to produce more multicolored goats, while he also tried to produce black sheep. Or black, yeah, black sheep. This superstitious move on Jacob's part is just almost a direct match to, to what Leah and Rachel do with the mandrakes. They also had a reliance upon folklore, superstition to make themselves fertile. So whether it was childbearing success or vocational or vocational success in Jacob's part, God's people often turn to some kind of superstition. Thankfully, Christians today don't do that. I mean, we don't have anything like that. We don't have any multi-level marketing things that sell you health and wealth or essential oils or homeopathic methods or chiropractors who feel your magnetic aura. We've got none of that stuff. We are just committed to pure science and godliness, right? Thank God for us, right? We've come along. Nothing like these superstitious people back here. I poke fun because it's all too easy to look down our noses at past generations with little consideration regarding how we often search for similar human schemes that might save us. And, friends, remarkably, the Lord is patient with us in this. Look at Genesis uh, 30 and verse 43. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkey, donkeys. See, the Lord intervened in blessing the patriarch with children, even in the face of the superstition of his wives, and the Lord is intervening to bless the patriarch with vocational success, even in the face of his own superstition. Jacob does know that his success comes from the Lord. He's going to speak in the next chapter of how the Lord has blessed him in giving him so much livestock. But Why? Why does the Lord bless Jacob, even though Jacob's faith is often weak? Why does the Lord bless Jacob, even when he's participating in superstitious folklore? Because the Lord promised he would. Did you catch that? Because the Lord promised he would. Jacob is a son of Abraham and Isaac. And God made covenant promises to him. I want you to see the familiarity, or the similarity really between Genesis 30 verse 43 here and what God says to both or what really Moses says about both Abraham and Isaac. So just keep your hand there. Look really briefly over at Genesis 12. Genesis 12 and verse 16. Abraham goes down into Or Abram goes down into Egypt with Sarai. You know the scene. I won't go into it in too much depth. I just want you to see the conclusion of it. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And notice what Abram's going to have. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. You guys notice the language? Go to Genesis chapter 26. Let's see with Isaac. Genesis chapter 26 in verse... 12, and Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Do you hear this, saints? The Lord's plans will not be thwarted. The Lord's plans will not be stopped. He set out in his eternal counsel to bless Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and he's going to fulfill it. Many are the plans in the minds of a man but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And what are his plans for his people? His plan is to bless you in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Isn't that what Paul says? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in him with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's his plan for you. His eternal plan. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So if that's God's eternal plan for you, what can you do in time to foul that up? What did you do in time to earn that? His plan is to bless you in Christ with every spiritual blessing, and his plan will not be thwarted, even by your own weak faith and your own foolishness. He's patient concerning you. Now you might wonder, "Oh, okay, I will receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, but in the here and now, I am not in the heavenly places. I'm in the wilderness of this fallen world, not the new heavens and the new earth of the world to come. This world is kind of terrible in a lot of ways. So now what? Yeah, that's true. We are strangers and sojourners in this world. We are like God's people, if you will, Israel, wandering in the wilderness, waiting to reach the promised land. But as God blessed Jacob, keep this in mind, as God just blessed Jacob outside the promised land here, so the Lord can bless us outside the promised land. God is not bound to heaven when it comes to blessing us. Do we understand that? God can and does bless us in the here and now. I do not mean, please hear me, I do not mean that he will deliver us to financial and fiscal, or if you will, physical prosperity. He can if he wants. But I don't mean that. What I mean is he's ever near to the brokenhearted. It's ever near to the brokenhearted. He is with you even now. We only need to go to him. The Lord is at hand, Paul says. Do not be anxious about anything. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You might wonder, how do I grow in my trust in the Lord so that I enjoy the peace of knowing that he's with me and for me? See, that's one of the things that we walk through life with, saints, in this wilderness, if you will, waiting for the promised land. We walk through life knowing our Lord is with us and empowered by his gracious presence to walk with a kind of peacefulness Knowing that he is on the throne, he is governing all things for our good and his glory. Not having to walk with anxiety about the outcome of things because we trust the Lord. That's the kind of life that God offers us. That's the, if you will, the blessing of heaven that we can enjoy now. But how do I grow in my trust in the Lord so that I enjoy that peace of knowing he's with me and for me? Sovereign Grace, this is why the elders of our church keep God's command to gather his people every Lord's Day. In fact, that's why we do it twice on the Lord's Day. It's not because we need something to do. When I'm at home in the middle of Sunday afternoon, I can tell you I've taken off all this suit. I'm laying there in my sweats like you all are. And I'm thinking, I do not want to get up and go back to church. I'm not thinking, oh man, I just can't wait to get dressed up and go back again. I don't want to do it why do we do it because we believe we need it because we believe we need it we need to hear from the lord as much as possible so the well the elders have decided if it's wise to hear from him once on sunday why not twice morning and evening start the day and end the day hearing from him because we need him Mark off the whole day saying, I need to focus on you, I need to hear from you, I need to see you in word, I need to see you in the sacraments, I need to pray with your people, I need to sing to you, I need you, because otherwise my eyes get focused on this world in a moment. I will be sitting here in church thinking, that is a great point, what am I having for lunch? This is how much squirrel, it's just for me, about life You all know it's true. And I will start in the middle of the afternoon or the early evening worrying about tomorrow and my secular affairs and my secular concerns, and I won't bring them to the Lord and rest in him. Instead, I will begin working on them, and I will scheme and plan and make it happen. And I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, do you really think that you can endure the daily grind of the world and the flesh and the devil whispering in your ears, being pumped through your televisions, being on your computer screens, popping up onto your phones, in your friends' mouths, in your ears, all day, every day, and if I sit under a sermon 45 minutes a week, that's gonna cover all that? So that I'm no longer anxious? We've gotta be in the word as regularly as possible. Morning and evening, we offer grace groups. Why? Because we want something else to do in the middle of the week? No. Actually, it'd be much easier for us as pastors to program less and just keep collecting the paycheck. Why? Because you need to be in the Word with people. Why do we encourage you to read your Bibles? Why do we expose the text? Why spend so much time explaining this to you and showing you how to read it? Because you need to read it. God has given you the great gift of having the word of God in your own language. A gift not everybody, in fact, almost 3,100 people groups in the world don't have that privilege. People were burned at the stake for this privilege. So we want to teach you how to read it so you can read it and meditate on it. Because you need it every day. got to pray without ceasing. You need the Lord constantly in your life. That's why you need godly friends Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of mockers. Now, how does that man do that? His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So he is like a tree planted firmly by, by streams of water, whose leaf does not wither. Do you, do you hear that? You want to be a firmly planted stream, I mean, tree by streams of water whose leaf does not wither? The blessed man, not walking in the counsel of the the wicked or standing in the way of sinners or sitting in the seat of scoffers, then you delight in the word of the Lord and you meditate on it day and night. Otherwise, you are going to be riddled with anxiety every time the next turn of events goes wrong for you. Every time. God promises to work through the means He's given to sanctify you, He promises. To cause you to look to him, he will work in you. To cause you to look to him with even stronger faith and to rest in him even more, he promises to work through the means he's given. So take advantage of them. This is why we're at pains to exposit the word, to administer the sacraments, to encourage you to be in the Bible together, to have small groups, to sing the Bible together, to read the Bible out loud. Have you ever thought about that? It's an odd thing, isn't it, for a bunch of people to gather on Sunday morning, a group, a room full of largely adults to gather together on Sunday morning while one adult reads a book to them. Have you ever ever considered that? Oh, this is, if you were just somewhere, never seen this, you walk in, you come together and let that guy read a book to you? Yes. Why? Because we desperately need to hear it. It's why we sing doctrinally rich songs. It's why we want to catechize your children so they know the faith. So they know how to walk with the Lord. That's why we have, we're working on plans for a Sunday school hour in the fall. Because we want to educate you more. See, we want you to know truth more and more. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Your own sinful devices, the schemes of Satan, and the wiles of the world will all conspire you to call you away from hearing from and trusting the Lord. So we're dedicated to work against that with all of our energy. So can I encourage you with this? We do not offer you any of these things to go through motions or because we need more to do or because we want you to have some great religious programming. We do so because we believe you need it and because we believe we need it. We do so because the Bible commands these kinds of practices for God's people. Please don't look the gifts of God in the mouth and then later wonder why you don't have the strength to stand when the world, the flesh, and the devil come for you. And they will. I can say unequivocally that I would not stand one moment in my Christian faith, not one, apart from the Lord sustaining me by his grace. And I would not grow in that grace if I failed to employ the means he's given me for receiving it. I suppose what I'm saying is don't see Sunday morning and Sunday evening in grace groups or catechism of your children or the additional Sunday school hour or any of that stuff as a kind of chore being added to your life. See that as the means God has given you to bless you and to hold you fast until the end. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful For God's grace to us in Christ, the privilege we have of knowing him, of walking with him, of hearing from him in his word, we pray that we would attend to these many gifts that you've given for our own good, to strengthen our faith by the grace of your spirit working through these means as we look to your son evermore in faith, as we humble ourselves beneath his word And honor your name. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.